of the past, striving to make sense of events by getting them in perspective. We, in fact, make judgments about world history all the time. All the better, then, to make them as seriously and as consciously as possible, whatever the shortcomings of our attempts to do so. Our minds are not going to be empty of them. One way in which I hope to have made this a little easier is by recalling something too often ignored, the importance of historical inertia and the sheer weight of the inherited past. This is not just a matter of what we can see, ruins and beef-eaters are interesting, but of minor importance, but of the mental and institutional history lost to sight in the welter of day-to-day -day events. This may be even easier to grasp in the light of resurgent Islamic fundamentalism than ten years ago. Then, too, while it was easy to recall that what was called the Cold War dominated much of the 1950s and 1960s, we often overlooked its deep background in forces moulding the outlook of Americans, Russians, and Chinese centuries before arguments could take place about capitalism and communism. Distant history, in such ways, still clutters up our lives. Even our chronology is soaked in history. There is no good reason in this book to set aside the Christian chronology, which divides the past B.C.A.D., and was first adopted in the 6th century A.D. for, say, the Japanese or the Islamic alternatives. But A.D. 1941, to take a year important in both Japanese and European history, is just as conventional a way of putting things as is the year 2601, which is the form once favoured by some Japanese nationalists. Calendars are cultural artefacts. Our choice of chronologically significant dates around which to construct them is shaped by history. The effects of inertia are offset always by another fact which shaped the general argument of this book, mankind's unique power to produce change. For most people, this may well seem more obvious than the way past history clutters up human freedom to act. The acceleration of change, its growth in scale and its wider and wider spread, are irresistible evidence of an increase in conscious power to master the world of nature, and one reason why people have underrated the weight of the past. Such evidence has accumulated further in the last ten years. Lately, though, this mastery has been understandably clouded by disaster. The enthusiasm once felt for technical and intellectual achievement has fallen into disfavour in some quarters. The Great Depression, Auschwitz and Hiroshima have been followed by pollution, fear of overpopulation, and the threat of war with ever more frightful weapons, to name only a handful of twentieth-century evils. Many people distrust Promethean visions of man which were in the past too easily distorted into an optimism which assumed that inevitable success lay ahead. They think such views dated and shallow, and they are right. They recall that the cheerfulness with which H.G. Wells contemplated the past in 1920 gave way to despair when he looked at the world at the end of his life a quarter of a century or so later. Though I can respect some of these misgivings, I do not share the pessimism which is often drawn from them. I doubt whether a knowledge of historical facts has much to do with most people's optimism or pessimism. Such feelings seem to me to be usually a matter of temperament. But even if this impression is wrong, it does not seem to me that many safe predictions can follow from such facts as history provides. We can only make judgments, not necessary inductions.
They do not force us to conclude either that we are now facing problems specially recalcitrant, or on the other hand that we are not. The resourcefulness and ingenuity so far shown by mankind in asserting its conscious control of environment is not now invalidated because huge new needs and problems have arisen from human achievement itself. Such problems need not be insoluble in principle, though the cost may be some major discontinuities. The odds seem to me to be that the world organized as we know it certainly cannot last much longer, but that ordered and civilized life will go on in most places where it already exists. We have no reason to suppose that the outcome will be any more intolerable than, say, the results of changes forced on traditional Asia and Africa within the last century by the coming of Western technology. Many people, of course, may reasonably argue that this would be intolerable enough. My ideas on such topics emerged, or at least were clarified, by writing this book. But they were not my starting point. At the outset, I was not sure of much except that I wanted, so far as possible, to tell a unified story and not to compile a new collection of accounts of traditionally important themes. My first body of raw material was constituted by miscellaneous reading and thinking over many years, and it became a little easier to grapple with the jumble it presented when, a few years ago, an American publisher invited me to write a textbook of world history for American colleges. Such books are specialized tools meant to do a particular job. I deferred the views of my publisher's technical advisors in writing it, and the outcome was, I hope, good in its way, but it was not a book which said quite what I wished to say to the general public. Yet, by forcing me to a first ordering of my ideas, it was a big step towards that goal. When I began to write it, I had already decided that this book, too, would be written, so that work on the two versions could not, for some time, be distinguished. They were both shaped by a desire to avoid the encyclopedic detail which often passes for general history. My aim has been to set out the major effective historical processes and their comparative scale and relations, not to provide continuous histories of all major countries or fields of human activity. Those who look for them will not find in this book the names of every American president, nor those of all notable Italian Renaissance painters nor the dates on which each African state emerged from colonial rule, or their names either, for that matter. The place for such facts is an encyclopedia, and it is also true that I have neglected many areas which interest scholars, and some others which possess a certain glamour because of the spectacle of what they've left behind. We still gape in amazement at the ruins of Yucatan and Zimbabwe, and wonder over the statues of Easter Island. Yet intrinsically desirable though knowledge of the societies which produce these things is, they remain peripheral to world history. I therefore only briefly sketched the early centuries of black Africa, or the story of pre-Columbian America. What Europeans later brought back from and did to such societies is a different matter. That has shaped and continues to shape our lives, even if only in small degrees. But nothing in black African or American history between very remote times and the coming of the Europeans molded the great cultural traditions in which the legacies of the Buddha, the Hebrew prophets, Plato and Confucius were for centuries and are still today, living and shaping influences on millions of people. 
I hope I've also avoided the seduction which the historian must feel when material is plentiful. It is always tempting to write about topics which have given rise to much debate, where records are plentiful and monographs based on them are piled high. But what matters is that a topic is important, not that we may be lucky enough to have a lot of information about it. The wars and diplomacy of Louis XIV, for instance, however crucial for France and even Europe, seem to me easier to pass over briefly than, say, the Chinese Revolution. In the most recent period of history, it is more than ever important to distinguish the wood from the trees, and not to mention something simply because it turns up every day in the newspapers or on television. Finally, though I use the Christian calendar throughout, I have striven not to be trapped by a Eurocentric viewpoint. I've tried to recognize the impulses of my own historical inheritance, which are bound to influence my choice of themes, organization, and chronological arrangement. I cannot believe, to quote an ideal of historical objectivity set out by Lord Acton three quarters of a century ago, that nothing shall reveal the country, the religion, or the party to which I belong, nor that I could provide, as he hoped, an account of Waterloo to satisfy French, English, German, and Dutch alike. Not that there is available time or space here to spend on such a theme. But I hope that an effort to remain aware of my assumptions and their limitations may nevertheless have made it possible to provide what he termed a history, which is distinct from the combined history of all countries, and which nevertheless recognizes the variety of the great cultural traditions which give it much of its structure. Judgment whether such aims are or are not achieved rests always with the reader. He should blame no one but the author for what he finds inadequate or erroneous, nor indeed for anything else in this book. Yet many other people helped to bring it into being, many of those from whose work I benefited, often long before I considered writing.